Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my finest friends. Welcome to the 26th episode of the ninth season of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Um, today's a guest episode, and my guest is the talented, generous, and wonderfully fun Pete Nestor. Um, I met Pete online really early on in my sort of plans to develop this podcast, and he was very generous and more than happy to share the things that he'd learned from starting up his own show uh, with me. Over the last couple of years or so, we've been listening to each other's thoughts on music on our various shows, and we've struck up what I think is a pretty genuine friendship online that goes a little bit beyond our, our shared musical tastes. Um, I've no doubt that whenever I do manage to get down to New Orleans someday, we'll be able to spend some time in each other's company very comfortably, very enjoyably. I've been looking forward to getting Pete on the show for for a while now, and this was definitely one of the most sort of relaxed and easy conversations that I've had with anyone who I didn't actually know or haven't sort of met in person. You know, we talked lots about music, performance, Tom, of course, and then Tom's music. And we actually got into a little um, bit of some of the byproducts of hosting music review podcasts that you might find interesting. Uh, don't forget to check out the fantastic show that Pete co-hosts with his great pal Brian Ruskin. It's called Honest and Unmerciful, a record review podcast. And right now you can find it on Spotify, but soon it will be coming across all platforms. Um, sit back, relax, and please enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Pete Nestor. So yeah, how uh, what's uh, how do how do we do this? I mean, I think I know how we do this, um, but uh, how do we do this? Give me. Uh... I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start asking you questions, Pete. Super easy. <laughs> questions like where were you, where were you? So you're not living where you were born and raised. You've traveled around quite a lot in your life. So where were you born? You were born, I think, somewhere around New York, right? New York State. New York State, and that's that's right. That's kind of an important qualifier. Um, Upstate New York is 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 what we always say because if you say you're from New York, people are like, "Oh, you must have been born on the D train in a subway tunnel under the Statue <laughs> of Liberty or something." But uh, but no, I I was uh, I was born in upstate New York, a town called Johnson City near Binghamton, near Syracuse, halfway between Niagara Falls and New York City. Hopefully that puts puts into context the the yeah. location. But uh, yeah, you know, um, kind of a I think you and I are of a of a similar similar age yeah. um so on on the wrong side of 50 or the right side of 50 depending on how you want to call that uh, as a, <laughs> as a, as of a, a year or two ago and you know um kind of growing up there uh what was what was that like it was it was a lot of uh it was a lot of cable television you know there wasn't uh, the technology didn't exist in the same way that it does today but of course cable television was like the technology and uh and for me like soaking in um, MTV, uh, soaking in the weather channel, which actually led me to kind of where <laughs> I, where I ended up, uh, career wise. Um, so kind of a dichotomy of, of, uh, of things there. Um, and then ESPN watching a lot of, uh, watching a lot of sports, playing a lot of sports and just kind of being a, a generally active kid on a, on a bicycle and all that stuff. But, yeah. but MTV for me, um, I was eight, when that when that hit, and I, I remember that just from the very beginning, and that was just I've, I've kind of learned as I've gotten older that I've, I'm a very visual guy, and I think that 
I didn't really realize this until, again, sort of thinking about how to put this intro together and sort of discuss um, my background a little bit. You know, geology, as as which is what I sort of went fell into as a, as a career, is a very is very visual. There's a lot of you know, looking at, observing, um, making maps, making things in three dimensions, understanding things in three dimensions. And there's there's something to that with music, number one, but also with the visual media of MTV. I think that you know, without realizing it, I think maybe it was kind of built into my DNA a little bit. Um, were you, did you have, was MTV a thing in 1981 in England? I can't remember when we got it. We definitely, I mean, everyone, you know, because I mean, you know, you, they play the guitar on the MTV, so Dire Straits kind of brought that into our sure. living rooms. I don't think we got it right from the off. I would say we got it right around that sort of 83-ish. I don't, fully remember that that's that's what my memory of it is so we mm -hmm. weren't really as sort of i didn't grow i wouldn't say i grew up with it um mm -hmm. until a little bit later and it but it, you know if you think about the impact on popular culture that mtv had like you said if it came out in 81 that's eight years old eight to sort of 13 years really primed for a lot of foundational oh, yeah. sort of music being brought into your life and it, that stuff that you listen to then you still listen to now right and so yeah. you kind of watch it with your friends and things so i am curious you know, because MTV really was music television back then, mm -hmm. do you remember sort of being exposed to just new artists or was it sort of reinforcing oh. the stuff that you were already listening to? Like, what was the balance of that? You know, we, we had a, there was a pretty big college in, in, in Binghamton, uh, State University of New York at Binghamton. Um, but I wouldn't say that that sort of bled over into sort of the general populace of the, of the town. It was very right. much a, a town kind of um in its own little space and uh so you know whatever was on the radio which was top 40 radio um in 1981 and then mtv which was like you know pat benatar the police elvis costello the pretenders the, it's a band called the greg kin band which okay. sang the song um uh, our loves it our loves in jeopardy baby if you if you remember that song it was a hit at the time and i know it was a hit because weird al yankovic uh, did a did a parody of it, <laughs> right. so that's that's what qualifies for a hit in 1983 or whatever. Um, but yeah, I never would have heard the Greg Kinn band or maybe even Elvis Costello. You know, at that point, a lot of his yeah. well, he never was a, a big radio hit guy in, in 78, 79, 80. With uh, maybe save for one or two songs. So yeah, you know, that's where I was exposed to all this stuff. And then of course, you know, we'll get into it later for sure, as yeah. this is the subject of the podcast, but <laughs> all sorts of Tom Petty stuff that I really remember. And it's, you know, I, I see those videos today and, uh, and it, it brings me right back to being eight, nine, 10 years old. Um, yeah. It just sealed, it just sort of sealed the deal for me. So yeah. Especially, so, especially like you say, if you're a visual person too, I mean, and we will talk more about this once we get into it, but like Petty's knack for understanding the the visual medium and i don't think he was doing it to exploit that market necessarily it's just sort of well that's what i kind of feel like doing this will be fun you know the, the label's going to give us resources to do it so why not all dress up in cowboy gear and go out into the desert or why not dress up as the mad hatter like what well, yeah let's it's just a bit of fun let's do it so if you're a very visual person of course that's going to give you these super visceral memories they're going yeah. to just transport you right back as soon as you see it right of course it is and it was you know even before then, you know, a lot of the a lot of the videos uh, on MTV were just performance videos because no one had the sort of the the, the think outside the box attitude of turning it into a story or whatever until yeah. 
you know, like you say, uh, uh, you got lucky or, or, um, you know, the Michael Jackson stuff at the same time in 83, but even like, like the waiting is a great example of just doing just enough to differentiate yourself. And then woman in love, it's not me for, for me, like, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but that <laughs> song and that video and the, just the imagery of that black and white and the way it's kind of that got that dynamics of, of, of getting loud and soft and, and all of that stuff just worked so perfectly. It just was such a great visual combination, even though it was just a performance video and then yeah. Stevie Nicks, you know, stop dragging my heart around the slow motion of, of her sort of twirling and yeah, without them even realizing it, maybe I feel like the band and the, and whoever was doing their direction of the, of the music videos at the time really, really hit on something uh, really crucial and important. So For sure, yeah. So, I mean, that's music that's coming in from the outside, but what was music like in your house? That, you know, what did you sort of grow up with? What, what did your parents listen to? Were they musicians? Like, what was your what was the music situation in the Nestor house? That's a good question. You know, I grew up um, actually in a slightly unconventional household um, where I had an uncle. I, I, was, I lived with my grandmother and my, and my mother, um, and my father came on the scene um, a little bit later to sort of fill out the the house, and that's a whole a whole separate topic. But okay. um, but really, the uh, we really uh, one of my first memories is of one of my uncles having a, a Neil Young poster that that kind of haunted me, which had nothing to do with music, but it was just an, an image of of Neil Young, kind of uh, long beard and and you know maybe he had a harmonica or something and just sort of huddled over. It kind of yeah. scared me to be honest <laughs> that, that image. <laughs> but the but the music that that I remember, I remember my 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 other uncle who was about I would say twelve years older than me. Um, he was listening to Led Zeppelin, so I remember uh, Zepp Four playing. Yeah on the turntable in 1976 and um you know that was that was really what my first introduction and, and he's always been a, a music fan um and i actually uh, took a lot from him and his musical taste um but really zeppelin for um for you know that's just the one that just always sticks with me as being yeah. the my visceral memory from being three four years old and then all the other stuff you know i remember the there was a monkeys uh the monkeys tv show playing on reruns back in 1976 i was like oh these beatles they're really funny and i remember you know sort of getting into that stuff uh and then you know captain and Tennille, tony orlando and don those are stuff that i remember but then um i guess billy joel's glass houses i remember borrowing that from a friend when i was seven years old and that was like the first time i physically held the medium of, a, of an album in my hand and placed it on the record uh record player um <laughs> M's pop music was a song that I remember also like the first single that I placed probably on a turntable. Um, so kind of, you know, kind of a random, I don't know if you say random hodgepodge, but uh, you know, I, I didn't have, there wasn't a very strong, put it this way. There was no musicians in my family. There was no direct like, Oh yes, he played guitar and he helped, you know, handed me a violin when I was four years old and suddenly yeah. I was playing the, playing the blues or whatever. So, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause I always, and I always assumed that, most musicians came from sort of fairly musical backgrounds, you know, someone's because you think that, well, how are you going to get introduced to playing if you don't have that kind of, you know, that kind of environment around you? But I've spoken to lots of musicians who say, no, no, no one played in my family. I just said I wanted to play guitar. And I think that's that thing with music that if it's in there, it's going to come out in some fashion. Yeah. You're going to get it out somehow. And it doesn't matter whether you're you pick it up at eight or you pick it up at 48. It's coming out at some point. Right. Yeah. And and I think that the, the difference 
in some ways and in, in my story, and I don't know if this holds true for other people, is that it took me longer to get there, I think. And I, and I do wish that I had really taken advantage of some things in high school or middle school sooner than I did. I, I, I was a drummer in middle school. I played in the drum. I played drums in the concert band, um, never got into the set. And I actually, in about 10th grade or so, I, um, I had a decision to either buy a drum kit or a, an acoustic guitar. And that decision was a pretty easy one to make, given the fact that a drum kit cost about a thousand bucks and an acoustic <laughs> guitar cost about 110 or whatever. And it was pretty easy to set up an acoustic guitar in your, in your bedroom versus uh, a drum kit. <laughs> and also you can sit around the campfire and impress the girls with an acoustic guitar, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 There you go. Exactly. That's right. So uh, yeah. So, but, but I do wish, you know, the piano is something I've never picked up and I wished that I had learned piano. Um, I wish that I had taken, uh, maybe mowed a few extra lawns for a few extra guitar lessons. I only had two guitar lessons in my life, which is why yeah. I'm still a very middle of the road guitar player. Um, a lot of it I just picked up. Um, I had the Beatles songbook, um, the complete Beatles songbook when I was in high school, learned chord shapes from that. Um, a friend of mine was a, was a big Stones fan. Um, he taught me kind of the Keith Richards trick on playing the blues, which is just to bar the A chord and then just to drop your pinky down in random places. And suddenly you're playing <laughs> half of their songs from 1968 to 1972, um, yeah. which, which is very, very true. It's, it sounds like a joke, but it's not like beggars banquets already in your, in your arsenal once you figure out that trick. Um, so uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of how I got, I got going, but you know, like I say, I really wish that I spent a little bit more time and then, and then um and then I, you know, I did kind of, as I was leaving high school, I had friends that were going to the, to the local university, a friend of mine, Mike Langley, um, known as generic Mike amongst the, uh, the uh, SUNY, <laughs> SUNY, uh, you know, sort of this underground, the underground name that he used, but he was a DJ over there at uh, State University of New York at Binghamton. And he introduced me to a lot of, a lot of the more um, interesting kind of underground bands, like, I don't know, Sonic Youth and King Missile and the Violent Femmes and Nine Inch Nails. I remember hearing the Nine, Nine Inch Nails stuff before, like that became a thing with their Pretty Hate Machine uh, album, um, Ministry, stuff like that. And then right. and that, that bounced me over to uh, working my own stint on college radio at uh, Cornell University, WVBR there, which is still, which is still in operation. Um, and that, I mean, now we're talking like 92 93 and what an amazing time for, for music yeah, man like I, I i you know learning guitar and sort of starting to get to the point where i was figuring out how to how to play it and how to actually make it sound like i wanted it to um <laughs> and then being on college radio um just as nirvana and pearl jam and alice in chains and all that stuff hit was was just an incredible opportunity so yeah, think, I, think I mean, about you think about that though. Sorry, but, but that's thirty years ago now, or just over thirty years ago now. Rock and roll or rock music hasn't had anything like that since, right? I mean, because it's rock sort of more or less died in terms of commercial terms around ninety six, ninety seven ish. But you think that there's got to be some thing that come in, and it's not Imagine Dragons, and it's not sort of this new hyper polished pop kind of rock that we do now. But we need something to bring us back because grunge which I still don't love as a label, it did take rock and roll back into that thrashy garage, make a noise. I mean, try and play your instruments well, but it's more sort of about the feel and about the passion behind it rather than all the hair metal boys who were sort of in it for the, the cars and guitar, cars and girls, right? So yeah, I just think we, I feel like we're, we're ready for a sea change again in within rock and roll that 
maybe we go back to blues or maybe we, you know, I thought Bonamassa might be it for a while, but like yeah. when going at that time, was there a sense that it, that it was important or was it just everyone was just excited about the music or did you kind of know that something was happening? Oh, I mean, I think that, I think that we all kind of recognized something was happening. I think you would probably agree with that. You know, it just felt like, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about, uh, the Beatles, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to compare uh, yeah. that, that genre of, of music and that time to when the Beatles showed up, but people always talk about one of my favorite uh, quotes from music is, is uh, Phil Collins um, talking about Sergeant Pepper. When Sergeant Pepper was released, you know, everybody was playing music over in this room and then Sergeant Pepper gets released and everyone's like, Oh wait, what's in that room? Like, I didn't even <laughs> know there was a room over there. And, you know, certainly grunge in that, in that time period wasn't, wasn't the same. And it was, yeah. there was a lot of things that were kind of bubbling in the, in the late eighties that you sort of look back and you listen to the replacements and you see Sonic youth and you see some of these other bands, but, but you kind of, even in the moment, it was just like, man, I couldn't wait for the next, you know, the Pearl Jam second album when that came out versus came out. I remember um heading in my my buddy's uh what did he have a t-bird or fiero or some some crappy little sports car <laughs> from you know that was already 10 years old and out of date at the time but i remember just putting verses in the in the in the cassette player and just riding around binghamton and just like just going yeah you know just yeah. <laughs> just being so overwhelmed with the exciting things that were coming out of that ch- crappy little tinny uh treble heavy <laughs> speaker that we were listening to and it's just yeah, I, there was definitely a, a sense of of something new and, and exciting happening for sure. And I don't know, I, you, you probably felt that same way, I guess, too. I don't know because I think it was slightly different in the UK. I don't think it. I don't think it landed in quite the same way mm. because we didn't really also we didn't really fully embrace the hair metal thing. You know, right. Bon Jovi and Poison they had the radio hits, but they weren't as Bon Jovi probably were because they were just, they were worldwide and global, right? But right. all the rest of the bands, like, you know, Motley Crue and Cinderella and Poison, although Cinderella I still quite like. But anyways, they didn't really, there wasn't that culture of that. So I, I don't think there was quite as much to push back against. And yeah. especially in my friend group, we all did listen to Sabbath and Rainbow and Deep Purple and, and Zep. And so grunge isn't a huge step removed from that. So for me, it, I didn't really feel that quite the same way, which is why I find it interesting speaking to an American about it because... Yeah. 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 And two things. One, Cinderella, uh, the uh, the drummer, Fred Corey, actually from my hometown of Johnson City, New York, population 17,000. So uh, that's cool. cool. You just mentioned Cinderella. Um, (laughs) And then number two. Yeah, I guess it's a really interesting point, because I know when I got to college in 1990, I remember, you know, what was what was kind of big and coming up was was the was the Manchester sound. Right. You had the Stone Roses and and uh jesus jones and 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 that's that sort of that sort of trend that that didn't quite break through in the same way for sure and uh, other than on college campuses yeah. in the u.s so maybe yeah maybe the u.s and the uk were sort of following different paths and it was just ready to to again blow the barn doors open a little bit more with with grunge and, and, and a new and a new sound um and you all already kind of had a new sound that you were gravitating towards and and uh and could could take forward in a different way so that's interesting yeah yeah my, my brother was listening to nirvana because my brother's always been a bit more hip than me he's mm-hmm. always been so even the one who chases the new things and so he he was listening to nirvana and i remember he'd written the lyrics out for uh what's that i'm so ugly but today what song is that uh uh, uh oh. <laughs> I, I used to cover that in a band that i was in what the hell is it called <laughs> uh it's not poly it's it's a one word title can't it's remember not, not yeah anyway so that song but he'd written lithium, all the lithium lithium there you go yep and so he's written these lyrics out so i'm like dan did you did, have you written this 
and he kidded me on for like a good two days. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of, I'm, I don't have any music. I, I got to figure out you know, someone who can play. I'm like, says, yeah, you should definitely do something with this. And then two, three days later, he's like, yeah, no, it's this new band I'm listening to. I'm like, oh, you son of a, like, <laughs> very gullible. I've always been very gullible. I can't tell when people are tricking me, so. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so DJing, yeah. I didn't know you DJed. That was pretty cool. How did you get that gig? Just kind of wandered into it or? You know, it, it was one of the first things in my life where I recognized, hey, if you want to do something, figure out a way to do it. And it wasn't that complicated, just like a lot of things. Once you kind of figure out how to get into it, suddenly you're, you're, you know, showing up as 80% of success or whatever the, whatever the term mm -hmm. is. And yeah, so I, I had a friend that I uh, was in the meteorology department uh, there uh, at Cornell and he was a meteorology major um, and uh, Jim O'Sullivan. And he, he, he was like, yeah, come on down, come on down to the station and try it out. And uh, I ended up doing that for two years. As a matter of fact, I, I left and came back about eight years later and uh, get into that part of the story. But uh came back and even as a 25 year old just went back to the college radio station I was like hey you still got a spot you know let me uh let me let me let me check this out and so yeah you know and I I guess <laughs> for for one night too I was um I would consider myself a shock jock um okay I, I was working Christmas Christmas Eve 1992 and um you know we kind of had a lot of latitude even though it was a, a commercial station with marketing and and advertising and stuff they gave us a fair bit of latitude to play what we wanted especially Christmas Eve you know, who's listening, who's listening to the stupid college radio station, yeah. 11, 1130 at night on Christmas Eve. So I was like, oh, I'll have a little fun, play, uh, play sympathy for the devil. And, uh, and I, I prefaced the song with, uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about this Jesus character lately. How about a little sympathy for the devil? You're listening to 93.5 WVBR. And, uh, it turns out people are listening to uh, college radio at 1130 on Christmas Eve because the boards lit up. And, uh, that was my one moment of infamy, but, uh, <laughs> really? Oh, yeah man. yeah People so i somebody called somebody man. called and the, the first call that i answered they were like ah oh, that's disgusting i am canceling my advertising and i sort of turned kind of white and like uh -oh. what, what have i just done <laughs> there never ended up being any fallout from it but uh it was a much more muted uh rest of the show let's put it that way <laughs> that's so funny because it, it's funny that stuff right because that's you know obviously the last dj gets into whether you can and can't do that and that's why it all gets sanitized mm -hmm. and whatnot but when you say something like that, it is clearly, it's clearly just a lead in. It's clearly supposed to be funny. It's not meant to be, you know what I mean? Like I don't, I wasn't, I wasn't, people... I wasn't taking some stand yeah, of, exactly. of organized religion or anything. It was just yeah. like, sometimes, you know, and that I get myself in trouble all the time. My, my, my mouth speaks before my head has anything to say about <laughs> it. And so, you know, it just was kind of one of those like off the cuff, like, Ooh, wouldn't this be, wouldn't this be cute and cheeky or whatever. And I, I just said it and then realized the, uh, the error of my ways. Yeah. Did you enjoy it though? Was that something you really enjoyed doing, DJing? Oh, it was awesome. It was so yeah. much fun. It was hard. Um, and it, it but it, it helped, you know, it's one of those things that it's it's one of those life affirming and and uh and kind of helps in your life affirming isn't the right term, but it 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 kind of helps you get over these fears that you have, just you know, everybody, I think, most most people anyway aren't just naturally charismatic. They're not naturally like able to get out in front of people and do their thing. And, and it took, it took a long time to kind of get enough confidence where you, you didn't feel nervous about every time that red light went on and suddenly the, you know, yeah. the microphone was open and, you know, and here we are now, like you're a, you're a podcaster, I'm a podcaster. I've played music in front of people. And, and yeah. uh, I think it all sort of started, that was sort of the beginning of the, of the progression to where it's like, okay, it's okay to, it's okay to put yourself out there and, and see what happens. So yeah, it was, 
it was a great gig. I enjoyed it. I don't know that it helped my studies very much. Um, <laughs> the uh, the beginning that, you know, when you first get the gig, you are working the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift. Um, and after mm. several months, you graduate to 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And, you know, it's it's not like, well, I've got class tomorrow. Like, no, you're that's your shift. You're, <laughs> you're playing. So didn't didn't help my studies so much, but uh, nothing was going to help my studies at that point anyway. So that's a different story entirely. But, but that's, I mean, that's what, that's what college, should, I mean, at least in, in part, it should be about is those experiences as well. I mean, the education's get through it. You know, I mean, I always tell, tell my kids or people I've hired even, when I'm hiring, I'm not. I mean, as long as you've passed all your courses and your classes, and as long as you're not like, you know, I don't care about your transcript. I want to know if you're the right fit. I want to know if you can present yourself. I want to know all those yeah. things. Yeah. People get too hung up on that kind of stuff. Go and enjoy college. Go and enjoy school. Go and enjoy being a teenager or an early 20-year-old because it doesn't last that bloody long. We're a testament to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard thing, right, though, to to give that kind of uh, direction or advice to the kids. I, I you know, we I have I have two daughters, that both, yeah. uh, well, both about to be teenagers now. One's, one's 12 and, and uh, you know, it's that whole like, go out there and mess up, you know, make yeah. mistakes. And uh, just don't make the mistakes that are so big that you can't come back from those mistakes. And it's like, yeah. well, how do you know what those mistakes are? How do you know what that threshold looks like? And uh, <laughs> you only know after the fact, you know? So yeah. it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I agree with you for sure. Like live your life, do things, mess up, um, yeah. experience all the things because you only get one shot at it, et cetera, et cetera, without getting too, you know, uh, too, <laughs> you know, preachy or whatever. But uh, it's, it's, it's tough, man. It, it is though. I mean, I think the longer you live and the older, more sort of, you know, revolutions around the sun that you do, you realize that all that schmaltzy stuff that goes onto, you know, onto nice seafoam backgrounds on, on Facebook and Instagram and on little mugs and things, they are true. The platitudes, but they're also true, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, very true. And it's hard to, uh, hard to convince a 17 year old of that sometimes, but uh, we try. <laughs> so when did you start? playing you know quote unquote seriously then when did like what was the first band experience when did you decide to take the leap from you know being sort mm -hmm. of fairly faceless behind a microphone as a dj to actually getting up on stage and presenting music to people yeah i i would it, you know other than some false starts and whatnot we actually finally started getting gigs a bunch of bunch of high school and college friends of mine put together something we lived in a we lived in a grungy house um, just off of campus that uh, literally, if you went down to the basement, there was uh, always four feet of standing water in the basement. So you would oh never go down gosh. to the basement. So it was one of these like, you know, one of these classic college stories of, yeah, we paid $175 for the four of us total in rent. And we, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the pipes were always backing up and whatever. But anyway, it was it was our band house. And that was our first gig was in the living room in that band house. That would have been, I don't know, I was 21 years old at that point. And it just just had a just had a great time. And then um, from there, went down to Tennessee, um, where I got a, 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 an advanced degree down there in geology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And that was where I found guys who had been in a band and we sort of put, a, you know, put some put some feelers out. We ended up, you know, playing in the battle of the bands at the university and, you know, had a bunch of gigs and put together a, a, a demo tape that we that we'd uh, you know, hawking our wares to the various bars and, and places around there. And that was really where I started to to learn a little bit more about actually songwriting um, and, and the craft and putting and bringing people, bringing people together in that way. So that was, that was kind of a, a, a pretty big moment. And then, um, and then back to, uh, back to New York for a couple of years, um, back to university again, for a few years um, to get another degree. I spent 
way too many years in college. Uh, you know, I guess I liked, <laughs> I guess I liked higher learning, um, or just wasn't very good at it and, uh, had to take a while to <laughs> finally figure it out. One of the two, but, um, yeah, played, you know, just kind of, um, continued to, to knock around, but then, um, ended up, uh, in uh in the real world in 2008 finally once uh 35 years later i uh, finally finally was able to escape into the real world for good and uh ended up in in houston and, and played in a cover band called the rock doctors which was which was fitting because it was four phd trained geologists so there was a little uh, a little double entendre oh, there with uh the rock doctors so that was that was that was cool and you know that was uh where we really started to you know there again play for play for some some i don't want to say big audiences we we actually just gigged and with our with our with our friends but uh right. you know continued to learn continue to to grow as a musician but then um then we went over uh the family went over to indonesia for 5 years right and so um with with work and so we ended up uh in a, in a camp in Sumatra. And when I say camp, I sort of mean like, you know, we were, we were a, a, a company that, uh, that had security because we were in a foreign country and, you know, you just never quite know, I guess there was always slight security issues. Um, never really anything that we, that we noticed for sure, but just to keep, keep the people safe and, and whatnot. But, uh, but there we, um, that was where I really, and here I was, you know, at this point, 42 years old or something like that. That was where, we finally had the resources, the time, and we were such a sort of a tight collective of expatriates over there um, that I spent three, four, five years of, of playing a lot of music. And we had a captive audience because we were in a camp in a foreign country. <laughs> and so, so that certainly helped uh, bring about a, uh, a renaissance uh, of, of music. And so yeah, we, we had a set of we could probably pull out anything from 25, 30, 35 different, different songs. And so they were all, yeah. all, all covers, but it was, it was a blast. We had so much fun and, um, you know, played for, for Indonesian national audiences, as well as, uh, um, uh, American, British, uh, other, other expatriate audiences as well. Right. And, and, uh, played some Christmas music to, uh, to a group of, of, uh, Muslims, um, which was, uh, which was kind of fun, a little run Rudolph run and, uh, Jingle Bell rock to, uh, to folks that, uh, maybe had different, uh, different opinions and different viewpoints, but, uh, yeah. it was, uh, it was pretty great. It was pretty great. And, uh, an incredible opportunity, you know, uh, leaving the, the music stuff aside, just an incredible opportunity, obviously moving the family over there for five years and kind of jumping into the unknown. And then yeah. after five years, not wanting to leave because it was so enriching culturally travel wise, um, just the friends that we made over there. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a special time and a really lucky opportunity for us as a, as a family to be over there. I don't know. Have you, have you ever had a chance to travel, uh, travel in Asia or Australia or any, any parts over there? Not Asia. No, now Australia, I have no intention of ever going anywhere near because I am deathly afraid of spiders. I think if I, I know that they're not dangerous, but if I saw a huntsman spider, I just think I'd faint pure away. I think that would be at the end of me. Um, Asia, yeah, no, I've not the, been. They got these birds called cassowaries over there too, which are like basically, basically dinosaurs incarnate. And uh, you know, I know that birds are supposedly a part of the dinosaur family, but uh, those things will those things will kill you dead in a in a heartbeat. <laughs> Pretty much everything that has evolved in Australia wants to eat humans. I mean, that's just including yeah. half the male population of Australia. That's you know. <laughs> The human population. It's, I just can't believe anyone wants to live there. It's insane to me that this massive. 
I was talking to my wife about this the other day that people don't realize how big Australia is because of, you know, the Mercator projection on the map. And sure. it looks very, very small because it's south of the equator, but it's almost as big as Canada. It's huge. It's huge. And most of it is desert. And most yeah. of that desert is inhabited by things with fangs and spikes and very long legs and bad attitudes. And, you know, I just leave it to the Australians. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good here. I like Canada, Pete. I like it. Come down to the US. I'll come visit there and I'll go to Europe where I know it's safe. But, but no, I've not been over to Asia yet either. And I've, I've, there is potential to be able to head over to Thailand sometime because they're setting up a new, I don't know if this is going to make it in the pod, but they're setting up a new wildlife health center in Thailand. And that's kind of my work over here. So we might mm-hmm. have a chance to go out to Thailand. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, man. I it's a it's a beautiful uh, Thailand's a beautiful country. I was just amazed the whole the whole Southeast Asia. You know, we we made it to Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Vietnam, Cambodia. You know, and you wow. and you grow up as an American watching nothing but but Vietnam movies. Like, uh, oh yeah, the the your your mortal enemy, the Vietnamese, yeah. and and then you get there and you're like, how are your people so nice? Is it even possible? to be this nice. And, you know, I, I think that there, there may be a little bit of uh, knowing where, where the bread is buttered as well. Like they recognize American dollars and tourism is, um, and just expatriate dollars and tourism is really, really helping the economy, but you never got that feel. You you always got that feel that it was just so warm and genuine and uh, just a real special place to, to spend, to spend some time. I hope you get a chance to go over there. You'll, You'll absolutely love it. But I think it's, it's, I always, no, not always tell people, I tell people that, if you ever get the opportunity to live in any other country than the one you were born in, especially if it is culturally different, you should take it with both hands because it, you know, mm-hmm. even the difference between Canada and UK is pretty huge. It's a pretty big difference culturally. And you see the, you know, when you get arm's length from the culture you're brought up in, you really kind of see, oh, yeah, no, that's all wrong. All that stuff that we thought and all about the rest of the world, it's just, it's just all wrong. It's the same thing I had an experience um, when I went to Berlin. You know, so I, I grew up, I was in the military, I grew up in England, you know, the Germans are our sworn enemy and yeah. you know, we fought the war against everything else. So you, you sort of get indoctrinated and brainwashed a little bit into that and culturally. Mm-hmm. Then when you go to Berlin and you see all their war monuments to all their dead and you see all the, you know, the, the museums and things, you think, oh yeah, they're they're exactly the same as us. I mean, the generals yeah. and the politicians are the difference, but the people who were affected, they're no different from you and I and they're no different from, they're just as scared, they were just as young. It was just mm-hmm. as much loss and devastation. So it really sort of, I think that unifies and sort of brings you into that. Yeah, they're not really the enemy and they're certainly not anymore, you know. Now it's well, the French. Um, now it's, the, yeah, everybody hates the French. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> I mean, you know, the the, the classic story of uh, World War One, 1914 Christmas, right? Where yeah. where they, uh, they 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 broke out in song and started playing playing football and uh, across the trenches and then they, uh, then midnight hit or whatever. And they stopped singing Christmas carols and went back to the machine guns and, and started beating the crap out of each other again for another three years. So yeah, it just breaks your heart, man. Yeah. Yeah. All, all, all people. That's it. Okay. But, so uh, let's, let's bring the podcast back up. Cause we're getting, we're going to a macabre right here, which yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, good. Yeah. Good, good point. Good call. No. So, so yeah, so five years there and then ended up uh, swinging back over here to, um, to, uh, uh, now living in uh, New Orleans area, actually, uh, Southern Louisiana, and um, been here for for five years. And and really, um, in the last five years, I it's funny because I got to a point where I was like, man, I, I'm starting to figure out this guitar thing. And I was I was singing lead vocals, which is something I hadn't done up until that point um, a whole lot. So it was just this like this blossoming of of what I think maybe was was unlocked potential. It's like, okay, man, now, you know, now I'm in my 40s. I got this figured out. I got something to do for the rest of my rest of my life. And 
I've probably played in the last five years, I've probably played a, a, a total of five hours worth of guitar in the last five years. Um, so unfortunately, it's something that, you know, you just sort of have, you have a certain amount of discretionary time and yeah. uh, with with family, with work and, and, and other things going on. And instead of pouring my time into playing music, I've poured most of my time into listening to music and yeah. um, and talking about music as we're doing here, which is the reason why you and I are actually having this conversation is because of uh, of the podcasting that that we both have have stumbled into and and I think you know for me for sure it was it was the it was the covid experience of like well I'm stuck in a stuck in a house uh, what can I do um to uh to sort of reach out and and meet people and talk to people and um and uh, I had a buddy of mine that I went to school with Brian Ruskin uh he was a uh, also a geologist trained at uh, Cornell University, just like I was. And uh, we would talk about music all the time back in 2005, 2006, 2007. And we continued to kind of bounce back and forth um, uh, musical ideas. And we had a we had a Google document that we would uh, we would share that we would say, OK, you know, what's your what's the song you want to talk about uh, today? And I would throw a, a song out there and I and a link to it. And we'd literally just like this almost this game of telephone or whatever you just sort of play back and forth on this Google document. We weren't even talking to each other. We were just basically texting back and forth for, <laughs> for like two years. And we, so we, we sort of had the embryo of some kind of an idea of, uh, of, of com conversing about music and, and discussing music and dissecting it. And then uh, COVID happened. We were like, Hey, let's, let's do something with this. So let's uh, we turned it into a, we turned it into our podcast that we've been doing now for about three and a half years, I guess, at this point. Yeah, and that's the honest and unmerciful band. I talk about this lots on the show, and people who listen to the to the podcast will know Pete's name because I always sort of shout him out when he comments on on our posts. Um, great show, and it was. I remember that's yeah, that's how we connected because you'd commented. I'd posted something in the Tom Petty Nation, and you'd posted about because you'd basically just done, or maybe the couple of weeks before, had done your mm -hmm. episode on Wildflowers. Yeah. And so I listened to that, and that was my entry. So of course, a really good entry point into the podcast. But again, I think that when you've got co-hosted podcasts, you come for the content. You come for whatever you know, whatever it is. If it's a Wildflowers, or if it's you know, you just you did um, Cougar Mellencamp, you've done Pearl Jam, you've done a whole bunch of different artists. Mm -hmm. But you stay for the host, right? You stay for the badinage. You stay for that relationship between two people, and that relationship between you and Brian is so familiar and so easy to drop into. It's just like listening to you know, eavesdropping on two old friends in a pub talking about mm -hmm. music. Which is perfect, yeah. right? For a listener, that's like, yeah, I'm totally on board with this, and I love listening to you guys when you when you're doing the pod because you like, man, you talk about so you know insights, like you guys' insights, even on albums that I've known before, known before. I'm like, I'd never picked up on that, or I hadn't heard, or I hadn't thought about this that way, or I hadn't. What's the one I was thinking about? So I was looking through this on the for the pod, and I'm trying to remember what bloody album it was. I think it was something off Soul. Mm. It was something that, and I think it was something that Brian said. I can't bloody, I think what it is now. I have to find it, but. I was like, mm -hmm. I, that's just totally changed the way I think about this song. And I've yeah. known that. I'm like, I've been listening to that album for, well, how old is that album? What was it, 80? 80, 86, 80, 86, yeah. So I've listened to that album for most of my adult life right. and just hadn't picked up on, oh, this goes on, which is what I think we try to do on podcasts is about music is we try and bring a bit of enrichment to people's listening. So tell yeah. the listeners about, again, how that grew out and, and what you're doing now, what the sort of the format of the show is and... and uh you got yeah because you got forty episodes that you just released one this past week which I haven't listened to yet. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, thanks for all those all those kind words. I think that for for whatever uh, chemistry that we have, um, it's definitely uh, 
hard earned. Uh, definitely the first couple episodes, we uh, clunked around a little bit, just like everybody does finding their format. But yeah, 40 episodes in at this point now, you know, and we've really, uh, I think, I think maybe it was around the episode, it was around that petty episode, actually, that was a that was one that really, I think, sealed for me. Uh, oh, okay, I think we're doing something right here, perhaps. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so just, just quickly, that was, uh, you know, that was definitely where you, I remember you reached out, we had conversations around how do I, how do I get music into this podcast and do yeah. I, do I even put music into this podcast and how does it work and all this stuff. And I, I feel, I feel lucky somehow to be a part of your embryonic journey into what has become certainly the best Tom Petty podcast out there and and uh one of the best music podcasts that i listen to and you, you're just so I, I think you you do such a good job with uh being able to thread the needle between um you know serious fandom and and kind of geekiness in terms of like you know let's talk about the the uh the equipment that he's playing here or let's talk about this chord structure and whatnot but you 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 you, you touch on that but you you do a such a good job of of adeptly balancing that with just how does it feel and, and what does it make you feel like? And, and, uh, and I think that, you know, we try to emulate that as well. I, I know a lot of times it's easy, right. When you're doing a podcast to just tell the listener how smart you are and how yeah. in, insightful you are and be so proud of like all of these insightful uh, observations that you make. And I don't think anybody wants to hear that. Like, Oh, this, yeah. this is an a minor going into a G uh, Lydian and you know, how, you know, you know, that, that gets old real fast. And so we try to, we try to keep it conversational as, as much as we can. Um, we're like you said, 40 episodes in um, and basically uh, you know, we kind of started off with this idea of uh, well, the first, the first episode um, that we, that we did was, was Beck's Odelay. And uh, I noticed when I was listening to Odelay that there's a, uh, there's a lot of Van Morrison all over Odelay and he samples, he must've, they must've gone or the dust brothers, whoever produced it must've gone into like a, a record store and found a, a, a copy of them um, from Van <laughs> Morrison and been like, we're just going to take this and, and basically lift everything off of here and turn it into this album. And so, you know, I said, just kind of off the cuff, um, what does, what, what do these two words Van Morrison have to do with today's episode? And, uh, and that's sort of one of those, those hooks that, that yeah. I think, you know, you have your hooks too, right? You have your, you have your petty trivia and you have, you know, you rate it at the end, you do it, you do a good job of, of keeping to the script. And I think people in podcasts sort of like to have that familiarity. Um, and we try yeah. to do that as well with the two words and kind of, uh, introduce it in the same way to make it, make it sort of familiar. So, so that's kind of where the, where the two words came from, but, uh, that's yeah, cool. You know, we have, a, we have a good time. We have a good time with it. And uh, we've, I think we found a, found a certain rhythm. Definitely. And I mean, I, I always tell people and I've shouted this out on a couple of my podcasts, definitely a couple of times is that you have the best rating system of any podcast in the world. Yes. The warm and tasty burritos scale oh, yeah. is that is the gold standard for all rating scales. All all, all podcasts should uh, <laughs> should move to that uh, that international system of rating. Yeah, we uh, <laughs> yeah the, the quick story behind that. We actually did a pilot episode um, where we were testing out uh, uh, Radiohead's OK Computer, and we wanted to see you know if if it sounded okay. And so we just basically just hit record and started talking and, and sort of fit, worked our way through it and. And one of the things about Radiohead's OK Computer is that there are a lot of songs that are that are very lush and very full. And I made some comment to Brian about how I feel like I'm being wrapped in a warm burrito blanket for this particular in this particular song or whatever. And he 
I think he took it was like, Hey, that's, that's great. Uh, how many burritos would you rate this album since we're already talking about burritos? And so, yeah. So yeah, radios, Radiohead's OK Computer was the genesis of uh, genesis of that. But uh, yeah, we uh, and then we of course fill our fill our burritos with something that is uh, <laughs> emblematic of uh, emblematic 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 of of of, uh, of whatever album we're we're reviewing that week. And so that's that's fun. And you know, you came on you, one of our best episodes, I think, was the was the David Bowie Hunky Dory episode where where you came on and and added uh, added a, a very uh, a very nice third counterpoint to uh, what brian and i were talking about and uh speaking of spiders i think that uh i think uh-huh. that we filled we filled it from with em- I, one of us filled our, our burrito with embryonic spiders from mars i believe that you week, did so. yeah and i, I got <laughs> the i got the willies there was a <laughs> <laughs> little no. little did i know that i was turning you you know turning you inside out making your skin crawl when i did that so i i apologize but uh i just saw your skin crawl again as i as i said that word uh, on the video on the video here so yeah, no, I mean, it, that was so much fun too. Like, and again, I mean, I've, I've talked to lots of people about this. Like anytime you get invited on someone else's podcast, you it's like, it really genuinely is an honor. You're just like, hey, thanks, man. Like, the, the fact that you want me on your podcast is just super, super cool. And the fact also that your format, you know, this is, you know, I do this on the, on the petty thing, but this is, it's the interviews or the chats are their own thing. This isn't really within the format of the show. So to bring someone else into that format mm. was, I was, I was nervous. Like, I was like, I hope I don't, ruin this because you guys have got a good thing going you think i've just got to find out where i fit into that conversation and just just kev don't say everything you want to say say about a third of what you want to say and that'll probably give give them enough time for the edit so <laughs> right yeah it's tough there again you you want to go on and just like you know wax eloquently about all yeah. how amazing uh, an observationalist you are and how much you know about music criticism and and uh, that gets i think i think you can see people can see through that i've listened to some podcasts where you listen to a half an episode, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, we're, we're geeking out on, we're geeking out on Iron Maiden. That's fine. But uh, I've got something else I got to do. So, yeah. 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 So I, I'd kind of written you offline and sort of, obviously I send the questions out to, to my guests and whatnot, but I did want to ask you about when you do these types of podcasts that we do, where we're sort of pulling apart, you know, like you said, we're looking at structure, we're looking at arrangement, we're mm-hmm. looking at production, we're looking at lyrics and, and melody and all these types of different things. And I always call it active listening. So I, when I, my process is I'll listen to the album and then I'll yeah. listen to the song and I'd listen to it a few times, just, you know, quote unquote, recreationally, just so I can think of, okay, well, how does everything flow together? What do I like the song? Mm-hmm. And then I go back and when you start called active listening, that's when you start pulling apart. Oh, I've never noticed there's a, there's like a tambo or something there, or there's, there's this harmony part or whatever it is. Do you, and you end up just necessarily hearing more in music. So are you able to just completely switch that off? when you listen to music now or has it sort of started to has no. that changed the way that you yeah <laughs> so for, for good or bad yeah it's creeped in it's creeped yeah. in for sure for good or bad and i i do a lot more active listening than i might otherwise and i think it uh it also drives my family a little a little batty i think yeah. as well like oh did you hear that did you hear that uh, harmony there that up high harmony at uh, you know there's obviously some processing going on with that vocals and they're just yeah. like dad please we don't you know, care. <laughs> I, I really just want to, like you say, I just want to, you know, the Owl City's on. Just let me listen to Owl City and and, uh, and stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I and I find, you know, I find that the active listening um, is really. Uh, it, you can you can chime in as well because I'm sure you have definite uh, thoughts about this as well. But it's it's really actually taught me a lot about what I personally love about music. Um, the things that I really appreciate and enjoy, you know, I, and I, I kind of knew this already, but there's, there's something about like, 
for me, it's the it's whenever the, there's interplay and interlocking um, rhythms, interlocking guitars. There's something structurally that is very satisfying to me when I listen to that. You know, I've yeah. always been a fan of like um, the Talking Heads, for example, and they do a lot of polyrhythmic stuff and and uh, and interlocking guitar parts. And um, you know, I I think that uh, maybe that's the drummer in me, maybe that's the rhythm guitar player in me. I'm not sure. Maybe it's all of those things, but I I find that I uh, really. I'm, I'm keyed in on that stuff much more than I, than I recognized as just a passive listener. And I don't know, are there, are there certain elements that, that you have found that are, have become even more kind of obvious to you as to, Oh, that's what it is about music that really draws me in. That, a really good question. And I don't know if I think what it, for me, I think more than anything else, it's given me, a better vocabulary, a better way of articulating what I think about music. I can do that yeah. much more easily now, right? I can pick and I can yeah. probably the same where I can I can do the sort of the really quick pass analysis stuff pretty rapidly now. I can hear, I know where the moments are, I know where the mm. where the points are in a song. Mm -hmm. Um in terms of how I listen to music or you know what my enjoyment to music, I think that what well, here's what here's one thing it's definitely done is it's made me a lot less dismissive of music that I maybe mm. thought that I don't like. Yeah. Um, I've come across that with the ultimate catalog clash that I do with my friend Corey. Mm. I would have sworn to you four or five months ago that I hate Metallica. No use for them, no time for them. They're crap. It's just I don't like them at all. Being forced to sit down and apply this sort of whatever we're gonna call it a skill to mm -hmm. Metallica is like actually, yeah, there's there there's a reason why they're as big as they are. It's because they're because James Hetfield's a very good songwriter, he is a good lyricist, he is a good vocalist. I just don't happen to like a lot of Lars Ulrich's drumming. But mm -hmm. I can sort of put that to one side, but it still becomes that it's that stone in the shoe, right? When you do yeah. sort of pick up on something and you can really hear it keenly, like yeah, it's yeah. kind of getting in the way for me of this good song, you know. <laughs> you and Corey do a great job. I haven't I haven't listened to everything, but uh, you know, I, I got through a lot of the of the Genesis uh, episodes that you did, and uh, you know, you, oh, thanks, you guys you guys have a really really natural uh, really natural flow as well. Speaking of uh, mutual admiration society here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, lo I love your flow, and you guys have a great back and forth and you and you're you're very honest and unmerciful as well which is something i like and I, do you one thing that i find very hard to do is um or let me take let me let me go in a different direction you know you mentioned that you listen to things that you didn't think you were going to like them and then you recognize oh there's really some elements here that really do draw me in and that actually you know are kind of uh kind of cool and inspiring and all those that all this that and the other i find that the more it it almost works to the detriment of the podcast sometimes, because if you listen to something enough, if you listen to a song 10 times or 15 times, it's very rare that you come away from it 15 times later, liking it less. Yeah. For me, it's like, okay, if I listen to it 10 times, I grab onto something, I get used to something that maybe I didn't like, but then it's like, oh yeah, I'm kind of waiting for that little quirky thing that that used to bug me but now it's like oh it's kind of comforting now that I'm listening to it for the 13th time and so I almost wish that I could give the burrito scale after less listen number two um and be very like okay this is my initial impression of it one and a half warm tasty burritos out of five done with it and then and then move on but then you lose the ability to kind of dissect it so you then your one and a half burritos turns into two and a half burritos pretty quick. And suddenly you're given, you're given, uh, um, I don't know, whatever, whatever album happens to be yeah. um, way more credit for than, than maybe you thought you were going to originally. So wouldn't that be an interesting exercise, eh? To do that, do exactly that, you know, yeah. one listen, 
rate it and then go back in and do your sort of an analytical listen and then you know just and just leave that to one side just to see what that difference is because i totally mm. agree with you and even you know doing a catalog that changes again because i'm way more acclimatized to again to throw back to metallica now than i was when i started and now i probably wouldn't be quite as harsh as i was mm. in those first couple of episodes right because i know what they are now where i really didn't go in yeah. so yeah i think I, I think it is a good thing though because again you know i like music and right. it's kind of fun to be polarizing sometimes and say, oh, well, that kind of sucks. I don't really like that. But mm-hmm. underneath it, like, again, the, these bands that are at this level, they, they're just not, it's like, you know, it's, oh, that, that hockey player is terrible. Well, no, he's still probably in the top, you know, 0.02% of all hockey players in the world. He just screwed Very, up on that yeah. one game that you didn't like. I mean, it's the same thing with these artists or, you know, they're Taylor Swift or, or, or even Bieber, man. I mean, you know, you look at these artists, there's something there. There's a reason. It's not just money making. There's a mm-hmm. reason why people listen. It's because they're writing songs that catch you and people like. So, yep, 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, people who write music that's catchy and that people like, what was your entry point into Petty? Oh, like we, are we just it, are we just now getting there an hour in? Oh, hey, we um, just go, we go all over the place with this. You've heard it before. <laughs> yeah. No, beautiful, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I I sort of hit on it uh, earlier, where where the the, the music videos and, and MTV um, were definitely my entry point. Um, I I think again that that woman in love video for some reason has always just stood out for me. Um, stop dragging my heart around refugee, all of those videos, um, the waiting were just ubiquitous in the early days of MTV. And I think, you know, if you had a video in MTV, not every song had a video at that point. So even refugee, I think that video was probably made, you know, when, when, uh, damn the torpedoes came out in 79, there was no MTV. And so when MTV showed up, they were like, okay, we just got to gather, gather together any video that exists from yeah. anybody over the last five years. And uh, Petty was already was already there with with some of his stuff, um, so right away he was just front and center. And you know, obviously, you know, we everybody talks about the "Don't Come Around Here No More" video, and and um, that certainly kind of gave you a different side of Petty than yeah. than you had before. It kind of humanized him in a way, and sort of uh, started that. That for me has always been the turn. Um, I wouldn't call that phase two of his career. I know you had a conversation with, uh, with John Paulson about that uh, yeah. <laughs> recently of, uh, you know, where, where, where the, where the phases of petty start and stop. Um, but that for me is kind of the beginning of this, this transformation of him from just a snotty snarling punk to a, to somebody that's got a sense of humor and that's it's goofy. He's wearing this big funny hat and yeah. you know, who's, who's wearing a top hat in 1986 in a, in a music <laughs> video. That's just ridiculous. But it just so happens. It's funny, right? Because it was just part of the the, the concept of of the Mad Hatter and, and Alice in Wonderland. But yeah. but somehow that became iconic to Tom Petty's look, even though he, I'm sure he didn't intend that to be the case. It just happened, sort of by happenstance, which I think is always kind of really interesting. But but you know, you sort of go through through that period, and then that coincided and dovetailed perfectly with with the um, with George Harrison's rebirth with the Cloud yeah. Nine album. And then you get into all of these 40 somethings and Petty wasn't quite 40 at that point, but he was about to be, or maybe he had just become 40. I don't know. I think he was born in 1960, um, 1950, 
1950. Yeah. So he was, you know, on the cusp, but uh, of these sort of uh, middle-aged rockers with, with Jeff Lynn producing George Harrison and then the Wilburys and then uh, Full Moon Fever. And so, you know, as a, as a 16 year old kid in 1989, just like thirsty for music and already just absolutely devouring the Beatles and learning how to play guitar based on, you know, whatever was on the white album. Um, that was just this perfect opportunity to be like, Oh, Tom Petty. I, I like his stuff. George Harrison, he's a Beatle. It's happening now. Right. Therefore I am both somehow um, vintage and current in the zeitgeist <laughs> at the time. And it was just a really special kind of moment to bring all that stuff together. And uh, so that's, you know, for me, that's, that's, that's where it all kind of started. Um, and uh, you know, just, just other, other memories of just uh, uh, going back into his catalog, damn the torpedoes was a, was a big one for friends of mine and I in college, just going down the highway. There was, there was something too about the, the quirkiness of, of, of Petty, which he also was leaning into at that point with his, with his drawl. Yeah. Kind of, kind of starting maybe with Spike off of Southern accents, but uh, you know, definitely doing a lot. Well, no, I shouldn't even say that. I guess the whole point of this, this is the, um, some of the stuff even off of uh, "Damn the Torpedoes." You know, "Here Comes My Girl" was one that we used to just, uh, just, just sing at the top of our lungs in the in the in the car, just having fun, kind of contorting the already contorted accent and lyrics the way the way he would he would snarl and draw some of those some of those things. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I was a Neil Young fan too at that time for the same reason. Neil Young also had that same affectation with his voice, where you know, kind of the Dylan-esque Neil Young, Bob, uh, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty kind of kind of thing, all yeah. all kind of coming together. But uh, and then I will say too, one of the things that really kind of cemented it, we talk about our, what our favorite albums are uh, by various artists, and and uh, we all have reasons for for those being our favorite albums, and. You know, I've always been very partial to um, "Let Me Up." I've had enough, not as his best, but as one that has meant a lot to me. And uh, okay. when I was when I was getting my when I was getting my PhD in geology, I actually spent a few years in the Atacama Desert in northern Chile, in South America, and there I would be alone with a field assistant. The two of us would be ten miles from the closest town probably 10 miles from the closest person. Cause you, yeah. you, if you were out in the middle of the desert at night, you were not, you, you might not make it to morning. You were exposed and all that stuff. So it was very isolated out there. And I had a few cassette tapes and one was a uh, double, double sided Brian Adams cut like a knife and reckless was uh, a little, a uh, little Canadian love uh, for my, yeah. for my friends, for my friends up North um, uh, blues compilation, a little Walter um, uh, best greatest hits. He was muddy waters, uh, harmonica player and just some incredible stuff on on that so i listened to that over and over again some beatles tapes um uh, i think i had the stones beggar's banquet let it bleed uh, a side b side on a cassette tape and then i had southern accents and let me up i've had enough and so while those two albums are not necessarily considered in the upper echelon of of the petty catalog and everybody of course has has their own opinions on all this stuff those two for me have always held a really special place in, in my heart because I just remember, you know, watching the sun go down um, or seeing the Southern Cross up in the sky, knowing yeah. that it was just me and a buddy um, and 10 miles to the next town and uh, and just uh, just listening to those uh, on the long car rides back to base camp or wherever it happened to be, we happened to be going. And so uh, 
So yeah, uh, you know, Petty's just been all over my, his fingerprints have been all over my, my DNA ever since, ever since MTV. Um, and, uh, you know, he continues to, he continues to do it. And I, I appreciate your, uh, tireless work in the, uh, in the, in that, in that regard as well, because, you know, it gives me a, a, a third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance to kind of revisit some of this stuff that maybe I'd forgotten about. And, um, and, you know, just as you were saying about, so, um, or, or what, whatever album we happen to be reviewing, there's, there's songs that I listened to, um, that I hadn't uh, heard in the same, that I'm now hearing in a completely different way, even though I felt like I already knew them inside and out. So it's just, uh, yeah, appreciate that. It's great and that, that that outside look though it's something that you you know I mean it's the same with Queen like in the Queen podcast with Randy like a lot of those songs he's never heard before so I take for granted right. of course everyone loves this song and then you find out that oh no not everyone loves this song that's just me you know what I mean so to getting that sort of not reality check or or affirmation one way or the other is it's always interesting but that you know I mean being out in the like you said being out in the desert and when you're isolated, because I've got sort of a similar thing when I was in the army, there's a right, right. similar experience with, with certain types of music or certain albums. Yeah. It does change the way that you, it changes your relationship to it, mm -hmm. right? It just changes because it's so locked in to that kind of experience, that personal experience that you're never going to be able to fully detach that. So you, you don't, you, you are biased and that's mm -hmm. not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing either. Right. And let me up. I mean, I think I said it on most of the episodes too. It's not like those songs. It's not a weak set of songs. It's just, it's, what tom needed to do at that point and he got it out and there's some really good stuff on there like runaway mm -hmm. trains i think is i'd kind of dismiss that song until i dove back into it for the episode i was like man this is a good song this is mm -hmm. a really really strong song do i love the production on it no right. would i change it yeah maybe but it's of that time and they did it quite quickly mm -hmm. so it's just what it is so i think that that the whole thing about it, it's not a good album or it's not a this whatever it's some accents is just this mishmash but yeah. it's part of that evolution of an artist and i, I always prefer when an artist has a bit of a blip here and there or or a, a change because it means they're trying to grow yeah you no know, and it's like you said i mean you're a radiohead fan and i'm I'm not really that much of a radiohead fan but it's the same mm -hmm. thing because they're just constantly looking for something to challenge themselves and to something that interests them and keeps them interested in making music and whether if it's a dud okay well they just did a dud and maybe the next album will be good so you know i think that's a good yeah. thing yeah, and and th th those transitions, I I totally agree. I I feel like "Let Me Up," I've had enough, is a great uh, a great uh, transitional album because it really was the bridge where he started, you know, getting that Dylan influence. Given the the uh, the what was it, the longest tour? What, what what was the name of the tour that he that he that the, the band played uh, as his backing band there in in eighty seven, I guess. And so, yeah. you know, getting getting a different perspective, having a different perspective on songwriting and maybe, maybe he didn't, uh, he didn't stick the landing, uh, in, a, in the same way as he, as he might've, but he certainly, uh, certainly pointed him in a different direction that he needed to go. Otherwise these artists, you know, you just become an oldies act and get stale and just, you know, turn into Chuck Berry and, and play your same, the, the same songs you wrote the first five years of your career until you, until you die. But if you're, if you're somebody that really wants to grow, you're going to have a blip here and there. And, and like you say, regardless of whether or not it, it's a it's a blip or not, everybody has their own impression uh, impression on uh, particular albums. But uh, yeah. it certainly, certainly was a was a was a turning point in his career. So I, I will say too, you know, we we're talking about Petty and things that that uh, kind of affected me about uh, about him as I was as I was kind of getting more into music, and and I I definitely don't want to uh, talk about him without mentioning. The third concert I ever saw in my life. The first one was Metallica. Interestingly enough, you bring, nice. bring up Metallica. That was my first show, Metallica and Queensryche back in 89. 
Uh, and then my second was Paul McCartney, um, which wasn't a bad, uh, bad number two in Philadelphia wow. in 1990. And then my third would have been, uh, I believe, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in Binghamton, uh, New York, in the Broome County Veterans Memorial Arena. And, um, so that was actually on October 11th. I looked it up um, because we can do that now with the with this interwebs thing. And and <laughs> and it was the day before he actually performed on Saturday Night Live for that uh, for that uh, uh, for the uh, Into the Great Wide Open where he did I think. Uh, what what did he do on on there? I can't remember the two songs he played. Now I guess Into the Great Wide Open and maybe King's Highway. I think it was but, King's uh, Highway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I and now that I go back, I remember. Oh yeah, I did get to see him play the songs the next day on national television, which is a really kind of a treat. Like I just he was just 50 feet away from me yesterday. And now he's on, you know, now there's 18 million people watching him on Saturday Night Live or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that was a pretty cool experience. But but I, I remember I remember him opening the show. There's a couple of, of vivid memories I have uh from the show. The first was he opened the show and I and I've never actually seen the whole Take the Highway Live uh video. I've seen clips of it. Um but uh but the opening of the show is actually everything was dark. You couldn't see the set. You couldn't see anything. And he 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 gets in front of the microphone and has has the guitar, and he just starts playing just chaos on the guitar, just just all sorts of noise, like you're okay. like you're listening to metal machine music by Lou Reed or something. And uh, <laughs> and then before the lights go up, you just he stops and there's no sound, and you just hear him go, "Oh baby." <laughs> and then the lights come up and it's like what a cool ass way to open a show because it's tom petty it's that southern drawl it's that yeah. uh it's that everything and then you know and then the, the lights come on and you know everybody it's sort of a famous tour where you you know the set is just decked out with the big tree and all the, yeah. the, the chandeliers hanging down and everything and so you're sort of greeted with that um and that was that was amazing and then of course there's the i, I will never forget the don't come around here no more sequence and again i think a lot of people having maybe seen take the highway live but probably a lot of people haven't um i i remember just very vividly and and uh mike campbell comes out he puts the he, he has a guitar and yeah. you probably know this already so you know where this is going he's got a guitar and he starts playing some some licks and it's it's all very full of reverb and kind of drenched in in in, in reverb and and uh, and he hits. He has a loop pedal. Uh, I'm not sure what it's what the technical term is, but I think a loop pedal hits the loop pedal, and it so it, it repeats the the two seconds of whatever it is, right? Yeah. Puts it down. Rody comes out, gives him another guitar, starts playing another <laughs> another lick, and then that starts looping. And he's got in my mind, it's four or five guitars. I watched the video yesterday. I'm not going to tell you what the real answer is, but it's in my <laughs> mind, it's four or five guitars that is that are playing at the same time. And uh, and then Stan comes out, or he's maybe sitting there, whatever. And he's got timpani mallets. He doesn't have he doesn't have drumsticks. He's got timpani mallets. And you know what? Don't come around here no more. Sounds like right? It's yeah. It's this huge drum noise. And so he comes out with timpani mallets. And I just remember him banging away on, on the drums with the timpani mallets. And uh, just this, in the swell from the crowd and the swell from the, the 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 fullness of the music that's happening in front of you. And then and then Tom comes out, he leans on the chest, he pulls out the the the, the hat from the video. Yeah. And uh, and then the whole thing just goes just goes haywire from there, right? The the, the ending is the is the the president's masks, uh, where he's being chased by uh, by Nixon and Reagan and Bush, and then he takes the symbol and shoves it in their faces, and they run away, and it's this crazy. It's just, it's like it's almost like a 
like a Genesis concert or something from 1974. There's like theatrical <laughs> elements to this Tom Petty concert. It just, yeah. it's just unbelievable experience that show. And uh, I just feel so lucky to have, to have seen it. Just, a, just an amazing, amazing concert experience. It's one of those two that when you watch that video, and I've watched that video a million times, like you said, I mean, Mike's intro in that, it's just, it's, Ugh. if anyone was ever in any doubt that Mike Campbell's a virtuoso guitar player and a performer, like, a, again, gets lost to you. Mike Campbell's a brilliant performer. Just watch mm -hmm. that. that. That alone cements his legacy, right? Yeah. But it, usually when you watch videos, one of the problems with watching, even video, like, you know, when you go to a show and then there's video online from the show, it never quite captures the feel of, being there, that one, when I watched that one, I can feel what it must have been like in the crowd. Like mm -hmm. really in the crowd, really there, because there's just something about that video. And take the highway generally, but that one performance, mm. if you connect to that really easily, or I do at least, and it's like, you know, Freddie at Wembley, Freddie Mercury at Wembley, there's a few that do capture that, the real feeling and the emotion of being there. And that's always been one for me. And that version of it is just, oh my God, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, can you Matt, can you imagine being in uh, at Live Aid and watching oh. that Freddie Mercury experience? Holy cow. <laughs> Just incredible. I mean and again though, that's where Petty wasn't that usually, right? Not not with the theatrics and everything. So it was interesting right. that they did that for that tour. And mm -hmm. I also think that it's cool that they did it for that tour and brought in the the horns and they brought in the backing singers and did all the you know all the stuff with the southern accents as well. But they mm. bring all that stuff in, but they only do it once. You know, so, yeah. it's, so you're lucky, and you, especially if you get this one time. And of course, mm -hmm. Petty always put on a great show, but that one's just different. It's just a wee bit special because of that, I think. I, I, I yeah, you, you don't know until hindsight that uh, that you're there for something, something so amazing. That was the only time I I ever saw him, and uh, you know, I guess any any show that I would have seen, I probably would have said I was lucky to have seen that show, and he was yeah. amazing, and and what have you, because he's he's not the kind of guy that has these off nights. He 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 gave everything a hundred percent every time he 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 put that guitar over his, over his neck. And, uh, but you know, that yeah. one in particular, that show and, 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 you know, at the, at the end, you know, they came out and they did their encore and, uh, and the lights came up, the house lights came up, people started streaming for the exits. And I, I actually wrote this, um, wrote this on Tom Petty nation, the Facebook group, just to make sure that just to see if anyone else had had, had ever had this experience. Um, and I, I, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm at least 20% sure that this actually happened. <laughs> um, he, Tom Petty came back out. The show was over. The people were leaving. The, the, the crew was, was, was tearing down the set. Petty comes out, he grabs the guitar and starts singing. I don't know what starts singing into the microphone. His guitar is no longer plugged in. He's strumming <laughs> a chord, like it's an acoustic guitar, but it's an electric and, and nothing's happening. And suddenly the, the, the crew is like running around like, what? The hell's what's going on and so they, they, they scramble like cockroaches getting back up there on the stage and start plugging stuff in and and at this point you know i'm i i got up it was general admission i was probably you know 40 50 yards back or something but everybody was leaving and i took the opportunity to because i'm a curious kid and i'm like i want to get up to the stage and see what this rock and roll thing's all about so i got up i was literally at the front row and this is all happening in front of my eyes and i wow. look back and i could see i could see behind the stage i see benmont and Stan just toweling off and, yeah. and Petty's up there and now he's, he's starting to sing some stones cover or something, whatever it is. And I look back and they they're looking around like, what's, what's, what's going he on? doing? What is, what is happening right now? And I, one of them, I remember, I don't remember which one it was and whatever, but, but they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and they turn around and came back out. They played like five or six more songs. 
they played like Stones covers. They were doing Stan yeah. was singing songs. I mean, I know he already had a song, Psychotic Reaction, that they always sang, but he sang one or two songs. And they just gave the fans like an extra 30 minutes of yeah. pure joy. And, you know, probably a third of the concert uh, goers missed it because they were in the in the parking lot on their way home <laughs> catching taxis. And here I am in the front row of a Tom Petty concert seeing something that's never, you know, maybe never happened before. Yeah. And uh, and I like I said, I put it on Tom Petty Nation and, and uh, I was... I was, it was interesting to see that, that everybody was like, man, you, you saw something. Cause that's, that's I've never seen how I've seen 20 shows and I've never seen him do that before. Yeah. So it was uh it was a, it was a really special night. So whatever, whatever, whatever was in the water that day, I was happy to be there. Well, that's what I've talked to lots of people about. That's why you want to go and see a real band, like a, a, like a proper rock and roll. If you like rock and roll, then it's not a formulaic set thing. And quite often it is where they're just getting through, you know, the hits, whatever it is, but now and again at a show, Something will happen, you know. Yeah. So I was talking to John was talking about it, right? Where Mike Campbell forgot the words to oh yeah, whichever dirty, song at the, it was at the Dirty Knob show, yeah, at the Dirty right. Knob show, or you know when I went to see Foo Fighters in Edmonton and they bring the guy up on stage to sing Tom Sawyer, and the guy absolutely nails it, and mm. the whole the roof came off, right? So, but those little things that happen at shows that make them unique and individual to you, that's why we go and see live music. That's what it's about yeah. to me. I don't want to see a band run through their songs and play them exactly the same way as they're on the CD because then I'll, I'll just save my money and my hustle. I'll just listen to the CD. I mm-hmm. want to see something that's different. And Petting the Heartbreakers, as well as just being one of the tightest bands you're ever going to see, mm-hmm. also had that capacity to just change things up, move things around, do extra stuff. You know, I mean, can you imagine that last Fillmore date? Was it three and a half hours they played? Something stupid, like 41 right. songs I think they played or something insane? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, and it's it it really is you know everybody gets that personal connection, um, and because every show is different and everybody intakes it in a different way as well. There's that feeling, even though there's forty thousand people in this in the stadium or whatever it is, and you know that show that I went to probably had maybe there was ten thousand people at the in Broome County there, but whatever the number was, it feels like you know it's again it's kind of cliche, but it feels like he's playing for you. Yeah, and you have those experiences, and you internalize those experiences the way you internalize them, and he's playing it the way he's playing it, and it feels like this, this connection with something bigger than just like you say, than just listening to the music. There's something something special. There's a real thrill there, and I, I wish I'd had a chance to see him again, but I'm certainly glad that I had the chance to see him even just that one time because it's a, it's always gone down for me as my as my favorite concert, and I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll go to I'll, I'll go to my grave probably saying that's the best show I ever saw. So was that. At what point then did you become like, you know, what we call ourselves petty heads? At what point was petty now you guys? So was it like you said, that was sort of into, into the Greatwood Open, into that era or the Wilburys and, and that kind of stuff. So once that gets locked in, do you remember sort of Wildflowers coming out and really looking forward to it and, you know, Echo and Last DJ and all these albums? Was was that something where the, he was your guy and every album is just like a new petty album? This is going to be awesome. I, I think that he was he had been around so long for me that I think I probably took him for granted a little more than I should yeah. and just kind of expected it to happen over and over and over and over again. I think about like I, I remember having conversations with people in in in, in uh, grad school of you know what are what are, what are your five favorite bands or five favorite artists or whatever. And I wouldn't I wouldn't ever put Petty in that in that list of five favorite artists, which is criminal because I had, you know, eight of his albums and I went to the best concert I ever saw was him. And, and, and yeah, you know, the, when the greatest hits came out, I, I bought that thing and, and listened to it uh, upside down and backwards a million times. And then yeah. wildflowers just blew me away. Right. And, and, and then, you know, echo and, 
even she's the one wall circus, you know, being played on MTV. And I, I kind of lost touch with him a little bit, I guess, after, after the last DJ, because he, you know, he just became a little bit less prolific when it came to music and I was yeah. moving on into different stages in my life. And I'm really excited about your podcast because it's going to give me an opportunity to, to miss all the things that for whatever reason, I kind of have, have glossed over or not given the, the enough time to, but uh but I would say definitely, you know, in that in that time period, it was also a tough time period, too, because grunge was was becoming a thing um, where it's like it's sort of a split. The road splits a little bit there. Right. Because what yeah. I was really excited about in music was the next Pearl Jam album or the next Nirvana album um, and, and the Smashing Pumpkins albums. That's what I was really gravitating towards. But, but yet again, there was this old reliable um, the uncle I could always see at Christmas time, um, <laughs> who was constantly coming out with this stuff that connected immediately. Yeah. And, you know, man, it, it, the greatest hits followed, followed by, uh, with, with Mary Jane's last dance, followed by wildflowers certainly, um, was, uh, was that was that was it for me as far as like cementing his place as not yeah. just somebody that's going to kind of casually entertain me on the side but but realize that this guy um is is a special human being he says it he's ended up on the same shelf now for me as as the beatles mm -hmm. and as the kinks and those bands who were just like i you know when everyone says who are your favorite bands i don't usually say the beatles I don't usually tell people that unless it's a muso, I'll, then I'll say the Kinks and the Beatles, but because you just sort of assume those <laughs> to a certain, a certain degree. Well, of course, the Beatles and the Kinks and and Queen, I love in all this. So I'll say, you know, oh, I'm into really, really into Green Lung at the moment, or I'm really into this, and I'm really into that. I've found John Prine and I've Jim Crochet and some of those types. You know, there's all those types of things. But Petty's in that bracket now, where through doing this podcast and then learning about his, his catalog and learning about the man as well, he's just at he's he's just at a different level to almost anyone else, which is not really fair to compare anyone else to him. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And, and he's, he very rarely makes top lists of, of songwriters or artists or whatever. And it, it does kind of, I, I don't know if it's, um, yeah, I'm sure you're not a, a baseball fan like I am. I, I grew up watching the New York Yankees. There's a the the his the catcher that uh, that played for the New York Yankees, Yogi Berra. I just watched a. This sounds like it's way off topic, but it's actually. I promise I'm making a point here that re is reference to Tom <laughs> Petty. Um, but Yogi Berra was always known as this guy that had Yogi Berraisms. Um, he would say yeah. goofy stuff like "It ain't over till it's over," and uh, you know, I, I I don't go to that restaurant. That restaurant's too crowded. I, nobody goes there anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And and he became known as the guy that would just say goofy stuff. And it turns out he was one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the major leagues. But nobody really thinks about him in that upper echelon because he was just, oh, Yogi Berra, what a funny guy he was. Yeah. And and I kind of almost feel like Tom Petty falls into that category a little bit where he's just so reliable and he's so personable and kind of, you know, had that kind of uh, that thing in the in the late 80s, early 90s where it is Tom Petty and people made fun of his voice on Saturday Night Live. And, yeah. you know, and, and and but behind this this personality that could come across as being cartoonish at times is this incredibly uh vital musician that had so many important things to say and, and has this catalog of music that is just stupidly good yeah. for a stupid amount of time who who's 45 years old and selling six million albums it's just unheard of right to to come out with wildflowers um even after the whole Wilburys thing is kind of crashed and burned and, the, and everybody's sort of moved on and then that's his biggest album 
what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> it doesn't make and, any sense. And the thing that's, that amazes me about that too is when, you know, when again, I was talking to John Paulson about this. I think we'd even chatted a bit offline about this maybe that once you get past Let Me Up, it's basically just clean sailing for the rest of the catalogue because there's no, there's yeah. no fat anywhere. There, you know, it's, it's going to get difficult to separate the... Mm the eights from the sevens from the nine, like it's, it's, it's so consistent from that point on, right. but it's not really very many artists do that. I don't think, you know, I'll get in trouble with my friend Bob Reedy over this. I don't think Springsteen did. I don't think he managed that same level of consistency late career. I don't think mm. Dylan did. I think Dylan's had a few high spots in his late career, but none of them have managed it. Were petty. Mm-hmm. It just never let up, but it just never seemed to, the well never seemed to run dry. He always seemed to find something else. Say like, you know, mm-hmm. fault lines off hypnotic. I always bring it up on the podcast, but yeah, for good reason, because that's a song that you write when you're in your absolute mid thirties prime as a songwriter, not when you're on your last album. That's bananas that he wrote that when it, at, that, at that stage of his career to me. Yeah, yeah, that 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 whole album, you know, and it's it's such a shame. Uh, you know, you don't want to get maudlin here or whatever, but it's it's so it, it really is true. You you hear people talk about this all the time, like oh, you know, what would what would John Lennon have done uh, if he had if he had continued? And and I'm I'm the biggest Beatles fan in in the world, but you know, the stuff that he was writing at 40 sounded like somebody, in my opinion, that was a 40 year old rock star that didn't quite have the same vitality or the same amount of things to say. Like yeah. Double Fantasy has some has some nice songs on it, and Milk and Honey has some nice songs on it, but it's just kind of like, well, sort of a continuation of his mid seventies kind of kind of stuff, and it just isn't as it just isn't as immediate, it just isn't as as present in my mind as 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 as, as the Beatles stuff. But Petty, you know, I feel like the next thing that he released would have been again another just absolute stone cold killer, like everything yeah. else he ever did. And you're absolutely right; I agree with that hundred percent. Because he never want. I mean, apart from again, you know. Well, even then, I wouldn't say chasing trends, but he never did that. And it's where, mm. you know, one of my other loves, Queen, gets the 80s when they started chasing trends instead of setting them. Mm-hmm. That starts to get dated then. Where Petty never did that. And especially, like I said, with Wildflowers, mm. there really is a turning point there. It's like, I'm not going to, I'm not really going to worry about whether this is going to sell a six million records or whether, you know, I get any awards for this. I'm going to, all I'm going to focus on is writing the best music I can with my band. And if I do that, I trust my own ability, my, you know, I trust the editor, I trust Ben Monton Mike to tell me when things are off that I know will be okay. And I think that there's an authenticity to that. We use that word lots with Tom, right? Authenticity. But I think mm-hmm. that's that's for me is where that switch happens. And like, you know, I was talking with John Paulson about the integrate wide open be then. I'm gonna expand on that at some point. I might write a thesis on this. But there's a <laughs> there's a there's a seriousness about it was always serious about the work, but there's a seriousness about that side of it, about really it only being about the music and not worrying about any of the other nonsense, the marketing, the branding. That's all someone else's job. I'm going to focus on making this, this next song be the best song I ever wrote. That's, that's going to be my approach every single time. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, you brought it up this, this idea that his songwriting, his lyrics really went to the next level on, on that album. And I think, you know, there's that, there's that uh, hobnobbing with the, with somebody like Bob Dylan will, will do that to you. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I'm not the I'm not the world's biggest Dylan fan. I I don't have very much Dylan, and I just don't have a whole lot of time for him personally. Just I just have a hard time. You know, it just <laughs> for obvious reasons, right? Either either you're 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 all in on Dylan, or you would rather read his poetry. Right. And yes. uh, <laughs> but you know, there's definitely something about about having those people in your life and 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 in your in your in your sphere of influence, and and you can you can definitely feel 
the turn. And I made a mention of this earlier, this idea of, of him going from the snarly kid that's just looking to to, to kind of uh, stir things up and be a chaos agent to a certain degree to kind yeah. of growing into this period in his life where he's become more introspective. And, you know, obviously with the things that were going on in his personal life and in the late eighties with his house being burned down and, 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 and then, you know, the, the, his, the, the, the marriage breaking down with Jane yeah. and, and, and everything that was going on there, it's, it's uh there's obviously something, whether or not it's the production that happened with Jeff Lynn turning that into the second phase of his career, whether or not it's the seriousness with which he, which, which he really took his craft to the next level um, at uh, whether it be full moon fever or, 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 um, or uh, into the great wide open. There definitely is, is something that, that, that lit another spark and, and turned him into something. He went from great to just deity level type yeah. stuff that at that point yeah and that sort of things at that stage too now for, for me at least where that will never diminish now i don't think there's anything i don't think i could learn well it personally like i don't think there's anything music that i could learn especially not on the albums i'm going to end up covering where i think eh, well maybe he's not quite as good as i thought he was i don't think that's only ever going to increase my love yeah. of his craft is only going to increase because his mm-hmm. love of doing it and his love of learning and challenging himself. Like I said, but he wasn't chasing trends, but like who goes and does mo- Mojo? Who goes and reforms Mud Crutch? Who goes and takes his chance with this garage band aesthetic on Hypnotic Eye? It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like, like I said, I'll put his late, I'll put his late career up against most artists' heyday, and I think mm-hmm. it probably stacks up. You know what I mean, pound for pound? Sure. Yeah, and like I say, I'm really, really jazzed about about this because I, I, he kind of fell off my radar a little bit as I went back to just different phase in my life after after last DJ. Um, so I don't know um, Mojo, and right. I know you love Mojo, and I don't know Mud Crutch, and I know Mud Crutch is uh, such an important part of of his legacy. And, um, and, you know, I know there's a couple of songs that I, that I've heard that I'm like, Oh man, this is fantastic. I wish I knew more, but I just haven't, haven't had yeah. the time or made the time to, uh, to, to delve deep. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seasons, uh, 17, 18 and 19 or whatever, with, <laughs> whatever numbers you're going to be at at that point. So. Okay. Well, that's, uh, we've done a, we've done a couple of hours. I think that's probably, you know, we can, and I know that definitely me and you could go for at least another two. <laughs> without without repeating ourselves but we should wrap it up here for now and this is obviously again folks i'll be splitting this into my chat with pete and then 10 questions will be a separate episode any final thoughts on uh, tom petty or anything anything you want to talk about and then just do let people know again about the podcast where they can find you where they can listen and anything else you got going on well i you know i i just would say again um the the service that, that you're doing is is uh it's it's real yeoman's work it's impressive that you're able to uh to take this idea and turn it into the, you know, just this loose concept of, uh, of going through song by song and, and and making it so special and allowing us to kind of connect in a way that we hadn't before. And I, you know, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to blow, blow too much smoke, but, but it's not, it's, it's, it's real. And I think it's, it's really, uh, it's really something that, that I've appreciated and, and uh, you know, you're, the podcast, his music brings joy to the world, right? It brings joy to people and just yeah. the way you approach it and just the positive energy that you bring to it is, has been great. And and I feel really lucky and, and, and privileged to, to be a part of this and to be able to talk to you about this, this stuff and, and Tom's music that means so much to, to so many people and, and certainly to myself. And yeah. So, so thanks Kev. Um, really, I guess, uh, I guess I'll, I'll also 
yeah, sort of end it with a, a little bit of a the plug of you know what what I'm doing and where you can where you can catch us. Um, myself and and Brian Ruskin have that uh, have that little podcast called Honest and Unmerciful, a record review podcast. Um, just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, but thank you also for 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 helping get the word out too. I definitely feel like there's there's been some some crossover listeners. I try to send people your way, and I know that you you uh, I appreciate you you helping us out. And uh, we are currently on Spotify. Um, we've got 40 episodes. Um, we do episodes anywhere from, you know, you mentioned Pearl Jam. I think the Wildflowers episode was was one of the first episodes where I really felt like we were hitting our stride. Um, we do The Who. We do, uh, yeah. I don't know, Smashing Pumpkins, Hollow Notes, um, My Bloody Valentine, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Some of the some of the most recent ones, the U two episode was really a lot of fun, and one of the, one of the ones that I thought was was uh, particularly special in our in our canon, the the David Bowie episode as well. So we kind of go all the way through the seventies, eighties, nineties, and into the two thousands with uh, with um, uh, Death Cab for Cutie and uh, Black Keys. Um, so try to take it into slightly more current current music. But man, it's it's a lot of fun. It's really helped get me back and, and inspired and, and thinking about music again. So yeah, if you're interested, check it out uh, on Spotify. Currently Spotify is about to change their, uh, their, um, their concept, their, their sort of rebranding their, their podcasts. And so yeah. the reason we went with Spotify was that we were able to play the, the whole song track in the episode. They're doing away with that as of maybe May or June of this year. Oh, good grief. So, I mean, it kind of leaves a lot of podcasters sort of out in the cold. No, uh, no Tom Petty connection intended, but um, <laughs> it, it might help us to sort of reimagine our format a little bit too, which I think also could could maybe use a little bit of shakeup. So maybe we're moving uh, moving on to Dave Stewart uh, production or uh, or uh, <laughs> or Jeff Lynne production. I don't know, but but uh, we'll see what happens. I think that we're we're sort of currently thinking about what it means, but it does mean. That we're going to start getting out into different platforms because there's no reason to be to be hidebound by Spotify anymore. If Spotify isn't going to do the thing that we went to them because yep. they did that thing, <laughs> so so you know we'll see what we'll see what happens. But uh, but anyway, honest and unmerciful, honest and unmerciful record review podcast on Spotify currently, but likely by the time some of you listeners are are getting around to this episode uh, out there in other in other formats as well. Um, we've got a Facebook page. Um, I'm no longer on X because I just didn't want to deal with the drama anymore, but, uh, but I'm over on, uh, on blue sky. So, uh, yeah, look me up and, um, do some, uh, do some interaction over there. Yeah. And folks, I, I, you know, and I, I, when I, the, I guess really all the guests I have on, I'm, I'm always genuine when I say that you should go and listen because honest and merciful is one of only, I would say four music podcast that i've listened to every episode and i've enjoyed every episode regardless of whether i like the band or not which is that's that's the trick right if you can if you can do that well then you know you're on something because i mean and you introduced me to xtc black yeah. sea, that black sea album now is that's on fairly regular rotation on my turntable yeah. love that that's record very cool. I, you know they're again radiohead i still don't love radiohead but i love listening to you guys talk about why you do <laughs> so folks go check out on us merciful Go check out Pete on Blue Sky. I'll post some links in the episode notes as I always do. Pete, thanks so much, man. This has been an absolute slice. And I knew this, it would be. I, I had I had high expectations and this has met and exceeded them, Kevin. This has been a lot of fun. I mean, I guess people just like talking about themselves partly, but being interviewed by you and talking to you, you're such a natural at it and uh, and it's been enjoyable. And I hope I gave as much as, as uh, I hope I 
gave as much as I got. Um, and I believe that, uh, yeah. Um, and, that, and then some. And then some. There we go. That was that was gonna be a that was gonna be me sticking the landing, and instead I uh, I, I tumbled <laughs> I tumbled headfirst into the <laughs> into the seats. <laughs> All you got to remember is it's like the Olympic uh, the vaulters, right? All you got to do is make sure you just do that at the end. As long as you That's do right. that at the end, everything else is good. <laughs> yep, big smile on my face. Nothing, nothing, nothing to see here. Everything's perfect. <laughs> awesome, Kev. Thanks so much, man. 